And we'll get the day started in good fashion with James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? You know, it's just another nice morning in South Texas. I had 1.34 in the gauge when I left home about oh, a little after 5 this morning, and it was still raining, so uh, uh, another good rain. Yeah, I was going to go check the gauge, but I didn't too lazy to put my mud boots on. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, pretty damp and uh, pretty muddy out there for sure, but... Uh, I'll have to go. I'll have to look to be certain, but I, I'm pretty sure this pushes me well over six inches of rain for the month of June, and uh, that's that's not usual uh, to say the very least. Every now and then we'll get a month when we have just a one big storm that maybe drops four or five inches of rain on us, and then that really boosts the totals up. But when you get rain from you know two tenths of an inch up to an inch or so at a time, and you get up to six inches, you know you've had a pretty wet month. Yes, sir. Usually uh, getting the cowpeas started for the cover crop this time of the year is like pulling teeth, man. Right. I mean, you know, but uh, it's just, you know, I don't have to do anything. I got them <laughs> sewed, and that's it, man. The weather's taking over. Yeah, just, uh, you know, my, my biggest fear, of course, is hailstones because uh, I can't cover up the whole garden. I've got shade cloth up over part of it, but... Uh, you know, it's it's just pretty darn good year. I don't. How how are your tomatoes producing? Okay, I'm I'm pretty much out uh, of tomatoes right now. Really? There's a yeah. There's a few greenies in there, and it'll be onesies and twosies. But uh, I hit it hard the middle of May, all of June, and then maybe a little bit into July, and that's pretty much it for me. Okay. Well, I've got to I've got to get you some seed and let you try this Jesse's Delight variety that uh we're trying to get developed. Uh uh got mine in a little bit later this year, but I've got I think I planted six plants of that and they are absolutely covered with uh fair sized green tomatoes. I'll bet you I've got twenty or thirty fruits on every plant. And um it's I think it's gonna be one that's kinda like Arkansas Traveler it tends to produce a little bit later into the end of the warm months for us. So we'll see how it goes. It's always something fun and different going on. Well what's what's happening in your world today? Well I wanted to call you and tell you about the uh uh watermelon, that Diablo variety that from Willite seed. Okay. That is one of the best watermelons. Uh it's really got a lot of foliage and it's a you know, it's taken over the the garden with the with the vines, and it's already set. Looks like a couple of twenty pounders are out there. Wow! It's a hybrid seed. It's a little bit more expensive, but it's really worth a try in this part of the country. You might say it's a devilishly good watermelon. Oh man, it's uh, I've only uh, I think five or six. I go through and call out all the gourd gourd uh-huh. ends or bottlenecks or whatever you guys call them. Right. Uh, and uh, just let the the more perfect looking uh, fruits mature. But I've only called maybe six or seven out of that whole patch. Wow, that's good. They're really uh, they're really a nice watermelon. How big? You said about twenty pounders. About what's what's average on mature size? Well, twenty five at least. Uh huh. You know, um, I've got some some ones that might, uh, well, fish and watermelons might go thirty, but uh. 
Well, that's that's a good sized watermelon for a good picnic, you know. I the watermelons come in so many sizes, all the way from these little what I call individual serving watermelons, all the way up to some of the monsters. But twenty twenty five pounds is uh, that's pretty good picnic sized watermelon. So I'm going to put Diablo on my list of varieties to check out. You can't go wrong. It's got the it's got the foliage. Uh, the the watermelons are hiding down in there, and they're not getting in a no, normal year. Is that? A usual year, it's usually hot this time of the year. Right. And they're they're down there under that foliage just really enjoying it, man. So uh, that's that's one thing I like about them. Oh, yeah. Sounds like a sounds like a good variety to put on the list to try. Is that the only variety you're growing this year or are you growing others? That's probably the only variety I'm gonna ever gonna grow. Really? Uh, that that's uh yeah, and the the flavors there. Um uh, real, real crisp, uh, real crisp and sweet. I really like it. Well, that's good to hear. I was, uh, I was at a, a field trials day earlier this week, and uh, they they had tested like fourteen hundred different varieties, but it's all flowers. I'm sitting there thinking, why don't you guys trial some vegetables for us and uh, show us what's new out there? But I guess we're just going to have to do that ourselves. I thought you were going to say watermelons, and I've been going, well, where, where was I when that happened? <laughs> um, no. I got a chili tapine or pekin or I don't know what the proper name for them, a little uh, buckshot-sized chili uh-huh. to grow wild. Right. I've been getting the seed from California, and it's coming in from uh, the deserts of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And this year I've got one plant that's, that outgrew all the rest of them and put on some uh, chili tapine, pekins that are about as big as your thumbnail. You know, some people will distinguish the between the two by the size of the pepper. Some people use those two terms interchangeably. Um, a lot of the growers that I know call the little ones chili patine and call the ones that are a little bit bigger up, you know, half the size of a serrano, they'll call those the chili pickings. But I have no idea if that's uh, if that's a, a reasonable <laughs> definition or not. But according to some people, there is a difference. But uh, And I know there sure is a difference in the size because some of them consistently produce a little bit larger pepper. And so many of them just produce that one that's uh, bigger than a BB, but not, not as big as a marble. These are about marble size, and there's only three of them on the plant. The rest of them were all chili pekin size, uh-huh. you know, what you'd expect. Um, I, I want to save those fruits for later. Because Absolutely. That, that plant is, is, man, it's almost three and a half foot tall, and it's got a stalk on it like a tree. And uh, I, I'm thinking maybe uh, I can grow some you know, six, seven foot tall uh, chili patines. Well, if you can if you can get the production up a little bit, that'd be good. Have you ever grown shishitos? Not yet. And you ought to. That's one. That's a pepper that you, I think, really ought to be growing because I. It's the most productive pepper I have ever grown. And I've got people lining up begging for them, saying, "Man, I can buy them in the grocery store, but they don't taste anything like yours." My little plants, uh, I think I planted 10 plants, and the tallest plant is probably no more than 14, 15 inches tall. They make a uh, pepper about the size of a uh, banana pepper, a little bit smaller than a banana pepper, 
but I'll bet you every plant has uh, 40 to 60 fruits on it, and I'm picking constantly, and I can fill up a grocery bag from three or four plants, and uh, they are sure tasty, and they are sure popular. I, I think that would be a moneymaker for you because it takes up very little space, produces a very, very heavy crop, grow super easily and they're hot enough as an old friend of mine used to say to have a little authority but they're mild enough that uh you know they're the they're the popular thing in all the craft beer halls these days for appetizers uh uh, you just blister them in a hot skillet and serve them with a kind of a ranch style dressing and man i can sit there and eat a basket of those things but uh uh, they're, they're a small pepper that grows really easily, doesn't take up much room in the row, but produces like I have never seen. I'll, I'll take some pictures and find a way to get them to you one of these days, and uh, I, I would sure consider it, I think it'd be a real moneymaker for you. And Johnny's got the seed. You know, I've been saving my own seed. I don't even remember where I got my first seed. I probably got, you know, plants from one of the growers, but... Uh, I, you know, I just set aside 10, 15 peppers every year and I got more seed than I know what to do with. So, uh, um, golly, I'll get you seed. I, I really don't know which one of the growers has it, but it, it comes true from seed and, um, uh, it's just a outstanding pepper, but I, I think it's a good market pepper too. I think you'd sell a lot of them. Yeah. I need to get started with, uh, with something besides my serranos they're they're pretty popular but, oh yeah uh, serranos are popular but the the shishitos will have a more broadly based i'd never give up on serranos and in fact those only two peppers i'm growing this year of hot peppers are uh, serranos and shishitos but um I, the production on these things is just absolutely amazing and uh, exceeded only by their popularity and you're, you got them planted, what, about 18 inches apart, 24 inches? I'd say about 18 inches apart. Because these, these Serranos I'm growing, this they get as big as a, no, not a Christmas tree, but they get humongo, man. Oh, yeah. You've got to put them, put them in at four foot apart. I, I they'll grow together. Yeah, I put them in a cage, and I put my Serranos maybe, oh, maybe 30 inches apart, but I'm growing in cages because they're easily three oh. feet tall, and they're a little, little more brittle than so many of the others. So, yeah, i got to stake them up because I get some wind in my garden periodically. Well, that's a really good idea. I've just got them on, uh, on rebar stakes. Okay, well, um, you have a good uh, good holiday, and uh, thanks for taking my call and answering my questions, Bob. Uh, I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure talking to you, James. You uh, you celebrate as well, and uh, it's just Independence Day. We 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 got a lot of Independence to be thankful for, so uh, I'll look forward to our next visit. All right, let's get back to these phone lines. It is going to be Mike and Jim and Tim and Catherine. We start with Mike. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Bob. Hey, how are you today? Oh, better and better. <laughs> That's always a good way to be to be as uh, as a hot summer weather hits. You know, it's just oh, yes. it's the way it ought to be. Yes, sir. Um, yesterday, I heard you saying something about spider mites and to use garlic on them or something like that. No, we use uh, liquid seaweed to stop spider mites. Oh, I'm sorry, liquid seaweed. That's, yeah. that's right. Uh, now, except for. Um, Black widows and brown recluse and and daddy long legs. I know zilch about spiders, but uh, <laughs> well, number one, daddy long legs aren't a spider. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's beside the point. I could have sworn.
corn they were. No, uh, sir. They're actually count the legs. Spider has eight legs. The daddy long leg has six. Ah, uh, so are spider mites actually spiders then? No, no, they are a mite, which is actually what a daddy long leg is. Is but um, they call them spider mites because they make a web. They are the only mite I know that actually makes a web. But when you get a severe spider mite infestation, you'll see a very dense little webbing mass. Now, they don't use it to capture prey or anything else, but um, it's just part of you know, part of the colony system, I guess you'd say, that they build. And that's why they call them spider mites is because they make uh-huh. a web that looks just like a spider web. Oh, okay. Well, I've tried everything else, like I said, on my... Uh Mexican key lime, uh, seaweed isn't going to hurt it, I imagine. No, in fact, seaweed's got like 96 different beneficial compounds in it. But what you need to know about seaweed is that it does not kill the mites. We The, the way that we really got started with this, uh, my business partner and I were at a nurseryman's meeting, I think up in Dallas, talking to an old friend up there, and she said, you know, I found that if I spray my marigolds even with uh, liquid seaweed, I don't get spider mites. Well, I came back and told old Malcolm Beck this, and he said, well, I'm going to have to see that to believe it. So he went out and took a bunch of old spider mite infected or infested tomatoes, sprayed them, and he calls me about two weeks later, and, you know, I'd almost forgotten that conversation. He says, Bob, it's a miracle. And I said, what's a miracle Malcolm, and he said, that seaweed, he said, uh, I sprayed those plants, and I went back and pulled some leaves off and looked under my microscope today, and he said, all the bad mites are gone, and all the good mites are still there. And so what that told us is that the seaweed was not actually killing the spider mites, but it seems that what it does is it toughens the leaf to the point that the spider mites can't affect it, can't do their normal sucking the juice out of it. So this is why we want to get started early before the infestations really start. Um, Uh Among the other things liquid seaweed does, it also, if you do it in late summer and fall, it'll add about five degrees of cold hardiness to your plants. They'll go a lot cooler before they freeze. So lots of benefits to spider mites, but or lots of benefits to liquid seaweed. Spider mites are just one of the things that uh, it will really help you out with. Very interesting. Learned a lot today. Thank you, Bob. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Everything else good with you guys? Oh, just the heat. We got two inches the other day. I tell you what, desert's pretty green, isn't it? Oh yes, uh, going south to going south to Monterey. I've never seen it so green uh, on the highway there. It's incredible. It's just amazing. Enjoy it while it lasts. Every time we All get right. one of these good rains, I think, well, gosh, I wonder if that's it for the summer. If we're going to go into a typical dry pattern, and you know, I've had a little something to record several days in a row now. And like I said, I had an inch a third and a third when I left home early this morning, and it was still raining. And uh, wow. It's just um, it's just a real unusual stretch of weather, and I'm loving every minute of it. Is uh, that's that, that, that's enough to fill up all those humongous uh, water storage? Uh, <laughs> Everybody I know with rainwater catchment is full, but uh, my business partner's husband, uh, his line is, he said, "We're uh, we're a good rain and a new calf are always welcome," and so there are a lot of happy ranchers around right now. Oh yes. Well, happy fourth, Bob. The same to you, sir. Look forward to talking right, again, you. Mike, and we'll right. we'll do it soon. And I'll say good morning, Jim. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, Bob, I've got uh, a problem with my hibiscus. Uh, I have two of them sitting side by side on my patio porch. Okay. Uh, one of them, it's yellow leaves 
uh, day after day. The other one doesn't. Okay. One of them is drying out a lot faster than the other, which may have to do with the size of the root system or variety or whatever else. But yellow leaves on a hibiscus say, hey, I've gotten too dry. And if a plant dries out one time, you'll have yellow leaves for the next six weeks. So uh, um, it may be time to repot. It may be time to put it in a little bit bigger pot. It may be, if they're still in the soil they came in, it may be that one of them just has is growing in a soil that dries out a lot more quickly than the other because these growers all use different potting mixes, both of, most of them not real good. But um, if you're seeing yellow leaves on hibiscus, you've got an issue with it getting too dry. And like I say, once that happens one time, you're going to fight some yellow leaves for about the next six weeks. Okay. Uh, it seems like I'm watering it enough. Uh, I'm giving it that uh, has to grow. Mm-hmm. It just seems like it, and I, I have it where the rain, when it comes, it hits that and it gets plenty of water also. Well, either you're not watering often enough or you're not watering thoroughly enough because, uh, like uh, I say, I've I've grown a few thousand hibiscus, and when I see yellow leaves, um, that's really the only thing that I know of that causes it, and uh uh, you know, you might tap it out of the pot and take a look. You're going to find that the great majority of the roots are all the way in the bottom of the pot. And most of these rains we've had, they haven't really been, you know, enough rain to really soak the pot thoroughly. And you can soak the had the top half of the pot, and yet that plant's really going to suffer from drought because you didn't get the water as thoroughly all the way through the pot. And uh, sometimes it's better to put it in a saucer of water and let it sit for, you know, four or five hours and let it soak all that water up. But if you're getting leaves, or if you're getting yellow leaves, uh, uh, it's an issue of having gotten too dry at some point. Okay. Uh, I'll check on that for sure. Uh, can you tell me anything about uh, the different kind of snails I'm getting? I have very small ones, and then and then I have the little bit bigger ones. Well, is one of them good, or one of them, or both of them bad. The ones that have a basic round shell are pretty much all bad. The little ones are commonly called bush snails. They're fairly flat, but they've got that kind of spiral look to the shell. The right. bigger ones that can get all the way up to eating size, and people who like escargot actually do eat them. Those are your European brown snail, and boy, they'll eat their weight in tomato plants overnight. But uh, the only snail that is really beneficial, there's one they call a decolate, or some people say a decolate snail, and it's the one that looks kind of like an ice cream cone. It's one that's got that extended shell and, uh, you know, kind of round ridges all the way around it, but it uh, looks more like a cowrie shell or, you know, one of the shells you find at the seashore. But that one that has that longer stretched out snail, he's one of the good guys. He actually eats the eggs of uh, some of the bad snails, so he's the only one that's worth saving. Uh, the others, um, you know, they get they get nothing more than the foot of the gardener, as someone once put it, and... Uh, um, but, uh, that's, that's really snails 101. That little one that is, looks kind of like an ice cream cone. That's the only one that's your friend. The others are not. I think I have both of them enemies then. <laughs> you can kill them, uh, many different ways. There is a, a non-toxic bait called Sluggo, S-L-U-G-G-O. Uh, it is an iron phosphate based, 
that is safe for people and pets. The old so-called bug baits, man, those things were so poisonous that a teaspoon would kill a small dog. But the sluggo is totally non-toxic and um, uh, is, you know, is very effective. And if you get sluggo plus, it'll take care of the pill bugs as well. Or a lot of people still use the old-fashioned way of putting out a saucer or a dish of uh, just old stale beer and they crawl into it and drown. They're not after the alcohol. They're after the yeast. But uh, I can't do that because I have two black labs, and they think that beer is God's gift to dogs. And <laughs> they they empty my containers long before the slugs and snails find them. But uh, if you have a protected area, again, shallow dish or shallow bowl you know, full of beer, you'll collect a huge number of dead snails in short order. But uh, that's those those are the two most effective ways to get them. Do you have time to take one more question? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, on my mandavia, uh-huh. I've got very little small group of yellow bugs. Okay. Uh, and on my uh, uh, country mum that I got from your place, mm-hmm. I have little black uh, bugs. Okay. The on your mandavia, they are almost certainly aphids. Uh, I mean, mandavias are just magnets to the aphids. On the mums, it is quite likely a little tiny beetle, commonly called a flea beetle, a little black beetle. If you'll get a little bit of that uh, spray they call spinosad soap, that'll okay. take care of both of them very, very well. It actually comes in a little ready-to-spray, uh, little one-quart uh, sprayer bottle, and uh, just you know a, a quick quick spray on either one of them, you'll pretty much eliminate all the troublesome insects. The little beetles tend to chew on your mums. The aphids tend to suck the juice out of your mandavia, so both of them I'll be working and getting rid of. But uh, non-toxic spinosad soap will do as good a job as a lot of the toxic products out there. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I think that takes care of all my problems. Well, uh, now don't expect those hibiscus to turn around overnight. It's, you're going to get more leaves for another four, five, six weeks. But I would water those plants in with a little Super Thrive, a little Garrett juice, something like that. You get some new root growth started, and I can pretty much promise you the problems will be a thing of the past. All right, back to gardening once again, and. Um, yeah, looks like we talked to Tim and Catherine and Dennis and Pat, and uh, Tim is up first. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Mr. B- or Bob. How are you? <laughs> you caught yourself. I Thank did. you. I Good. Did. I did. <laughs> I'm great. Yeah, How are you doing this morning? Doing great, man. We're uh, pushing about seven and a half inches here by Bernheim for June. So it's you know, I I was figuring, and I, I've got to go back and look at the exact numbers, but I figure with this morning's rain, I'm over six inches, and. And like I was saying at the start of the show, I remember June's when we had a major storm that would dump four or five inches on us, and that really pushed the total up. But to just have a cumulative amount where you're getting anywhere from, you know, a few tenths to a little over an inch, to get that much rain in June is a very unusual and very welcome event. It is. Oak trees are filling up with acorns already. The deers are they got big old horns are going right now. <laughs> hey, listen, i got a friend of mine that just got uh, several hundred acres in, in northern uh, Gillespie County. And, yes, sir. Uh, he, was, he was telling me about his oak wilt problem, and uh-huh. I was trying to shed some the knowledge I picked up listening to you throughout the years and telling him to expose, of course, first, start exposing the root flare. But what 
what is the cornmeal ratio again? Well, you know, I started out when we first started experimenting with this using dry cornmeal and, uh, you know, friends up around Sisterdale and all, they were saving big trees with it. But uh, what we are finding is that you can use a lot less cornmeal when you do the corn water tea kind of thing where you, you know, just take buckets, you figure about half a cup of cornmeal per gallon of water and soak it overnight and then simply use this to pour around the trunk of the tree. The other thing that we're finding is that you only need to go out maybe as much as 10 feet from the trunk of the tree. It's not like you're going out and trying to, you know, soak the drip line and everything, which is what we were doing with the dry corn meal. But uh, I've got a number of arborists, including some of the best arborists I've ever known, that are doing this and saying, hey, we're really getting results with this. So A&M and the Extension Service still don't want to admit. And it's so funny because it's one of their guys that found out what cornmeal does. He was dealing with peanuts, not with oak wilt. But um, what I would suggest you tell your friend is just go to the feed store, go to anywhere that formulates or compounds feeds, and uh, just get the cheapest old, doesn't matter whether it's corn chops or cornmeal or whatever form of the the corn. You just don't want the so-called enriched you don't want the cornmeal that they've already polished the good stuff off the outside to supposedly make it more palatable to people but ratio is about a half a cup of cornmeal per gallon of water no reason to strain it if i were doing it in you know a larger area i'd be going out and just taking you know somewhere five gallon buckets or something like that or barrels if you have access to them uh i'd be soaking you know three or four um, on a bigger tree, one or two buckets, and I just go by the afternoon, dump that uh, cornmeal in the water, and then go over the next morning and just kind of pour it out over the root zone and move on to the next tree. Um, the arborists are telling me that where you're working to prevent it, do it about every six months, where you're working it to actually cure a tree that has oak wilt, uh, do it three or four times within the space of six or eight months, and I've seen trees that other people had written off and said there's no hope for this tree. And uh, over a period of about two years, they're back looking like just they did before the oak wilt moved in. Okay, that was that was the question. So the ones that are, are infected right now, you should do it every four to six weeks? Yeah, I would do that for two or three applications and um, and then just stand back and see how they do. I've had an arborist tell me that if the tree was more than half defoliated, uh, that it probably was not going to survive. But then I've had people that I would say the tree was 80% defoliated, and I've seen those trees come back. They'll have a fair amount of dead wood in the top um, if the tree is that far gone. But um, I've seen, I'm thinking about two trees that the fellow I buy hay from had that are probably four foot in diameter. And those trees were probably 80% defoliated. And, and today, I guess it's been about four or five years since Larry treated those. Uh, they're absolutely beautiful trees. All the trees around are dead that he didn't treat, but those two mm-hmm. majestic ones that he was most interested in saving, um, good-looking trees today. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Hey, what are these black-and-white hard-shell beetles, large? You know, they're like two inches? Uh, sort of spotted. Yeah, black-and-white. That, that, that uh, that's the adult stage of the borer that gets into uh, elms and ash and things like that. Um, okay. I try to kill them whenever I see them. There's a whole, there were a whole bunch this spring. Yeah, so, yeah, there are a lot of them around. They make that flathead borer that uh, 
you know, I've never, I can't say that I've ever seen boars kill a young tree, but an old tree, once you get that damage, just cumulative year after year after year, it's not a good thing. And, uh, those, uh, as interesting as they are, and they're, they're kind of pretty things, but pretty is as pretty does. And those guys get my foot when I see them. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) The the footprint uh, of the gardener is the best control. Excellent. Hey, real quick question. Did you know Warren Long? Yes, absolutely. But a lot of years ago, um, yes, exactly. he was kind of he, a jerk if you want to know the truth, but <laughs> he was different and his wife. I know. Yeah. He, uh, um, yeah, he, boy, he sure accumulated a lot of ranch property around. He did. You, you live kind of in that area, don't you? Well, you know, I see that LO, um, marker that he has out by all the fronts uh, all over Kendall County uh, up through Gillespie County and so I don't know where you would even say his home base was but yeah he yeah. he uh, had some ranches uh, pretty close to me yeah excellent all right Bob we'll have a great weekend I appreciate is that is this sure. one of the ranches that your friend acquired up there no, no oh, okay. I used to hunt off on uh Warren's place there on 46 yeah yeah he yeah. and he and uh Oh, what's his name? The uh, fellow with the Lone Star Bear, Harry Jersig, you know, had a big place yes. down from us, and uh, yes, exactly. um, lots, lots of old names and a lot of, lot of good yeah. old uh, early people in the hill country. Um, <laughs> I just wish, uh, I wish all the families had had the sense to buy more land and hang on to it. But I, yeah. I'm thankful for what we've got. Uh, I wonder. I wonder when they're ever going to open up the uh, natural area there across the highway on 46. You know. I heard it was a funding issue, and then, you know, there's always a lot of vehicles parked in there. And they, It is a state natural area, which is not really, um, the principal purpose of it is not recreational. We went round and round about that early on. There was some uh, little twerp is the best way I can describe them yeah. that, with Parks and Wildlife, and man, he was drawing plans for bicycle paths and RV parking and everything else. And right now, they're doing, they're using it for a lot of research. They've got a fair number of golden cheek warblers on there. Uh, they've got some very rare plant life on there. And, uh, I've, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of walking a lot of it, sort of have a deal with, uh, with James and the guys there. They've come down to my ranch and I've shown them some of the management techniques I follow. And I said, in return, I get to come see what you guys are doing. They have a pretty, oh large crew of volunteers and if you ever want to get to see some of that volunteer to, to give them a little help on some projects but i i don't i know that they do have plans to open up at least parts of it uh they're probably going to keep the people out of the golden cheek warbler habitats at certain times of the year and all but uh i honestly don't know what the timetable is but uh, next time i see james or next time i talk to some of the some of the big wigs at uh, Parks and Wildlife. I'll see if I can get you an answer for that. But thank goodness they decided uh, it's not going to turn into a trail bike and uh, you know motor- motorcycle test ground. <laughs> hey, amen to that. All right, Bob. Have a good one, man. It's always a pleasure, Tim. You have a great weekend as well, and celebrate the Fourth in style. All right, it's eight fifty-three. Let's get back to gardening. Uh, Catherine and Dennis and Pat and Vic in that order. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Good morning. I have a question. I have a question about my son's tallow tree, and since it's last night, it's kind of timely here. 
he has a natural split. I guess when it was younger, we okay. should have trimmed one off, but we didn't. Okay. And yeah, and it it's widened, and so it collects the rainwater in there. Uh huh. And he's so worried about it, he even gets his shop back out to try to suck some of that out. That it's gonna you know get worse and worse and worse and rot one of those trunks off. Well, that's not going to happen. It's uh, uh, there are a couple of things. I would do either do myself or get an arborist to do because the danger, of course, is, uh, you know, a V like that is always a weak link in the tree. What you have is actually bark builds up between the two separate trunks and the wood fibers are parallel to each other. And as each half gets heavier, it gets more likely that someday there'll be a storm and it will simply split in half. What an arborist would do is he would probably get a little higher up in the tree and using plastic-coated cable, he would, in effect, tie the two halves of the top of the tree together so that they couldn't gyrate, you know, independently in the wind and pull apart. It's called cabling, and um, it's a pretty common practice on a mature tree like that. Um, Sometimes, and it just depends on the tree, they will also go three, four feet up if those two independent trucks are fairly close together. Uh, they will take a piece of what is called all thread, which is a steel rod that simply has uh, threads all the way up and down it. They will drill a hole all the way through the two trunks. They'll stick one of these r- rods all the way through, and then they'll put washers and a pair of nuts on either end, once again, to kind of hold those two trunks together so they don't independently split apart. But um, those are two things that could be done uh, that would stabilize the tree uh, very well. If uh, The one thing that he does not want to do is don't be drilling holes down through there trying to create a drain. That, That introduces all sorts of bad things into the tree. What he could do if he wanted is get something as simple as a can of that spray foam insulation and just kind of uh fill up that, that, you know, void down there. He could do the same thing with concrete, but no, it'd be a lot easier with just a can of that spray foam stuff because it's relatively water resistant and he could simply fill up that cavity where the water collects. So the water would run off rather than collecting. And every couple of years he might have to get in there and redo it, but that would be the simplest, you know, do it yourself easy thing to do but uh um if it were me i would um if he is skilled and can do it himself just fine but if not i would get an arborist out there to talk about cabling or uh use an all thread holding those two tops of the tree together because that long term is going to be a you know, if he doesn't, one of these days that tree will split. Won't have anything to do with that water collection, but it just has to do with the weakness in the trunk and uh, the opposite sides getting heavier and heavier. Okay. Well, it's about 20 years old now, so I don't know how long callow trees survive. Mm, 35 to 40 if they're in good soil. Okay, that'll last a while, but I like that idea to spray foam. Yeah. That, Be a good starting a good point. Quickie. Be a good yeah. starting point. All right, thank you. He wanted your opinion, so I'll give it to him. <laughs> now you've got it. <laughs> thank you, Catherine. I appreciate the call. Dennis is next. Good morning, Dennis. Yes, I bought an apple tree about three or four years ago and didn't realize it had root bound or didn't look for it because I wasn't aware of a problem and took it out of the container and planted it. 
And, of course, it's not standing upright. And so I realized what was going on. And I took the uh, – someone had mentioned to dig down on the side of it and mm-hmm. take a saw and cut the roots. And I did that on one of the sides with a sawzall. Uh-huh. But it didn't seem to help because the, we had a big glass – big wind a while back here and it blows it practically 45 degrees over so Mm -hmm. i pulled it back up and staked it off temporarily here and uh so i didn't know what i need to do next well do you know what kind of apple it is what variety i you know i don't right right offhand well if you if you took 100 varieties of apple trees probably 98 of them aren't going to do well here uh, there are only a handful of apples, and if this came from a box store or somewhere like that, it may just be an, an apple tree that needs more cool weather uh, to develop a good root system. The way that the professionals will stabilize a tree like that is they will take two pieces of pipe, good strong pipe or actually just super strong rebar would work, and they will put them flat on the ground on either side of the trunk, uh, a couple of inches out from the trunk, and then they will anchor the ends down. So what you've got, you're stabilizing the root ball because you've got something sitting on top of the root ball that doesn't let that root ball tilt back and forth. I'm not worried about the trunk moving, but I don't want that root ball gyrating back and forth where the whole tree can fall over. Does that make sense? Yes, okay. That's well, how about when I did dig it out and cut the roots on one side, did I do more harm than good? No, you did exactly. Or? You would have done it. You did exactly what I would have done. Okay, okay. Now, so if take you take the rebar, now I'm in the hill country and uh-huh. so you take it and you you lay it flat or you drive it down beside the No, roots? no. You you put it flat. You're not trying to stabilize the trunk. You're trying to you're trying to put weight you're trying to hold that root ball down oh, and keep I'm, the root I'm ball from racking back yes, and sir. forth. Yes, sir. And then okay, just anchor so you're ends. laying it flat yes, next to that to keep it from moving up and down, and then you weight it down, you On said? each end, usually with a little stake or something. Let me put you on hold, Dennis, and I'll talk to you off the air. This is KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. From ABC News, I'm Michelle Franzen. President Trump stepping over the line at the DMZ separating the Koreas, becoming the first U.S. president to cross into North Korea. At the invite of leader Kim Jong-un, the president hoping to turn the moment into a jump start for denuclearization talks. ABC's Jonathan Carl is in Seoul. As they walked back to the South Korean side. It's a, it's a great day for the world and it's an honor for me to be here. Another rarity. Kim Jong-un speaking to American reporters. President Trump has just walked across the demarcation line, he said. That made him the first U.S. president to visit our country. The two leaders met behind closed doors for over 30 minutes, agreeing to renew stalled talks. Democratic presidential candidate Julian Castro telling ABC's this week after failed meetings, he says the president is elevating a dictator with a photo op. It's worrisome that this president erratically sets up a meeting without the staff work being done. Uh, It seems like it's all for show. It's not substantive. On the campaign trail, Democratic presidential candidates are banding together as race becomes a key issue in the campaign. Several coming forward to defend Senator Kamala Harris from a new attack on her background. ABC's Rachel Scott is in Chicago. The pack of Democratic candidates united to defend one of their own after online attacks questioned the racial identity of Senator Kamala Harris. One person tweeting, 
Kamala Harris is not an American black. She is half Indian and half Jamaican. I'm so sick of people robbing American blacks like myself of our history. The tweet reportedly gaining attention after the New York Times reports Donald Trump Jr. shared it, later deleting it. A Taliban spokesman says the seventh and latest round of peace talks with the U.S. is critical. The militant group meeting with Washington's peace envoy in Qatar. You're listening to ABC News. Good morning, Pat. Hi, Pat. Hi there. Good How morning. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How about you this morning? I'm doing very well. Good. Uh, I've got a couple of questions. One is, uh, what can I do for leaf cutters? I had it one year, and then they kind of went away after they ate half of my tree. Right. And then um, now they're back, but they're, they came back with a vengeance. And what are they eating the leaves off of? Of my uh, fruitless pear. Okay. Uh, it's easy to take care of them on trees. And what you oh. need to do, there is a product that you will find at most nurseries that is called Tanglefoot, T-A-N-G-L-E-F-O-O-T, Tanglefoot. It is a sticky, sticky, sticky substance. Uh, It it, it looks kind of like axle grease, but it's a whole lot stickier than that. And what you do is just wrap a piece maybe 8 or 10 inches wide, either a piece of either aluminum foil or plastic wrap. Just loop it around the trunk of the tree several times and then take a tongue depressor or a paint stirrer or something like that and just smear a band of this stuff all the way around the trunk. You don't want to put it directly on the bark, but whatever you've put on top of the bark, make a band of that about 2 inches wide and the leafcutter ants cannot cross that. Okay. Now, you know, it's it's tougher if they're going after your begonias or if they're going after a crepe myrtle that has 10 trunks. But on a tree, it is real easy to stop the leaf cutters, and hopefully they will go somewhere else far away to find the leaves that they want to harvest. I hope so. Or go away completely. Well, that's I think that's wishing for too much, but we can always yeah. hope. But uh, that, you know, the Tanglefoot... Uh, it's good stuff. It's inexpensive. It is non-toxic. And uh, best of all, it's 100% effective. But don't make just a little half-inch wide band or the ants just throw one of their buddies on top of it and walk across his back. But if you make a band around this couple of inches wide, they simply cannot cross it. You'll have to reapply it about once a year. It lasts a long time. Now, if we if we have a lot of dust storms or something like that, which certainly doesn't look likely, uh, there's a chance that you would have to reapply it more more sooner. But uh, the kind of weather we're having right now, it's one application that's going to last you a long, long time. Okay. My other question is, where can I find uh, Grand Duke Jasmine? I think it's a jasmine. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bushing, very, very fragrant jasmine. Um Grand Duke is the double form, and all I can tell you is call around to your bigger nurseries. We get it periodically. The one that is very, very similar to Grand Duke, it looks about the same. Uh, Flowers look a little different, but has the same wonderful fragrance and the same bushy growth habit. But uh, look for one called Sambac, S-A-M-B-A-C. 
Um, and it's you, you wouldn't know the difference unless you set them side by side and looked at the difference in the flowers. Sandback is much easier to find. I'm pretty sure we have it in stock. I imagine Fanix does. I imagine Rainbow Gardens does. But uh, the Grand Duke is just, it's a little bit more double flower, and it's a little bit harder to find. But, uh, again, we get that one periodically. If that's just the, the very special one you want, sometimes have to get it out of Florida. But uh, oh. Sandback is very, very similar. Now, you know, both of these are not cold hardy. You're going to have to grow it in a pot and treat it as a tropical plant like a hibiscus or something that you bring inside in the winter months. But, boy, for that fragrance, it is sure worth growing. Yes, because I have one, uh-huh. and it, it grew like five what do you call it, little stalks. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it stayed like that for about six years. It didn't do anything. It bloomed only two little flowers, and that was it. Well, you either need okay. to get it in more sun or fertilize more often because okay. sandback and should bloom just constantly through the warm season. Okay. And then after that, all of a sudden, it started growing. Uh-huh. And now, right now, it's like every bit of seven feet. <laughs> and... I said, and where I have it, it's more to the east, mm-hmm. and I do cover it up. Yeah. And uh, because I've got it on the ground. Okay. And uh, I was wondering, can I get cuttings from that? You can. Uh, the easiest thing to do rather than a cutting would actually be what we call an air layer, where you, uh, you know, scrape a little bit of the bark off the side of a branch wrap it up with moist sphagnum moss and then wrap that with aluminum foil or plastic wrap and what will happen is where you have split the bark off that one side of the branch it will start putting roots out into your moist sphagnum the kind of stuff we use to line hanging baskets but you're in effect making a pre-rooted cutting if you were just to take woody cuttings probably one out of ten of them would root for you when you do air layers you get 100 percent success and the warm summer months are the time to do it. So uh, you could put a tree, a, a big bush that size, you could put eight or, eight or ten air layers on there and have eight or ten new plants about six weeks from now. Okay. Uh, one more quick question. Uh, my daughter has a lot of ants in their backyard, and she has treated it with uh, different things, and they just seem to just get up and laugh at her. What kind of ants? Are they fire ants, or what kind of ants does she have? They're fire ants because I've been in the back, and I get, like, little whelps. Okay. Uh, She needs to do a two-step process. First Mm -hmm. thing is go to a good nursery and get a a product called Come and Get It. It is by Fertilome, and it is the most effective fire ant bait that I've ever found. It'll kill about 90% of the ants. Uh, you don't disturb the mounds. You just go sprinkle. One bag is going to be enough to do a, even a fairly large backyard. And either okay. early morning, late evening, you just go out and scatter this around, especially around where you see the mounds. And the ants go out. They pick it up. They take it back into the mound. They feed the queen, and the queen dies, and then the whole mound goes away. The second thing to do, and she should probably do this every 6 to 12 months, is get a bag of what is called dry molasses. It's molasses has actually been soaked into something like ground-up corn cobs or cane or something like that, and just sprinkle that all over the backyard. Uh, It is good for your plants. It's very good for your plants, but it creates so much bacterial uh, activity, so much microbial life, that the ants leave. 
My business partner has a, well, she has kind of an interior fenced garden that's maybe 30 feet wide and by 25 feet or something like that. She worked for years trying to get rid of the fire ants, got one bag of dry molasses, scattered it through there, and hasn't had fire ants in three or four years now. Okay, and neither one of them will hurt. She's got a dog. Won't hurt dogs, kids, grandkids, won't, won't hurt anything except the ants. Okay. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, and I thank you so much. It's always a pleasure, Pat. Good questions. I appreciate the call this morning. And uh, let me move on here, and uh, Vic is up next. Good morning, Vic. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm great, sir. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing fine. Get, get, a, get an inch of rain overnight and then have it turn into a nice day? Man, what more could we ask for? Yeah. Uh, we've had lots of damage out here where I live. Uh, I thought they were oak trees, but uh, they were cedar elms. Uh-huh. I had them, had, had them trimmed up and stuff yesterday. But there was a lot of damage around here, and I guess a lot of them were cedar elm trees because none of my oak trees Well, I have a friend that lives maybe a mile west of I-10, and... Uh, they had that little uh, downblast of a very small but very intense storm. It tore up everything. I mean, snapped off big oak trees at ground level. And, yeah, if you get yeah. in the middle of one of these really intense cells, um, it's the weather's been very violent and very damaging. Yeah. Uh, to get on with my questions, I, I have some vine questions. But first of all, I have a cedar tree. It's probably... Uh, probably 30, 35 feet tall uh-huh. and 18 inches at the base, but it's almost dead. It has a little green on one of the limbs. It doesn't have a lot of limbs on it. Yes, sir. It's uh, got four or five limbs, and they're all buried on it. They do not have any uh, small branches or anything on it. And this has and been going on for— do you think? Excuse me? Has this been going on for two or three years, just gradually declining? Well, yeah, it was that when I moved here about three years ago, and it was yeah. that way. Uh, how long do you think that tree will stand there? Not much. Well, it'll stand there for probably five years or so. Um, uh, what it's probably, you know, suffering from is too much water. And when I walk around my own ranch, I a lot of those big old primary growth cedar trees just fold up and die when we get into a real wet period. And that second growth cedar just grows like a weed. Uh, the uh-huh. yeah, And, you know, cedar wood, I've got fence posts on my ranch that have probably been there 100 years, and they're still, you know, very strong, very durable. But that's when you've taken a pole and stuck it way down into the ground. That big old cedar tree has a root system that's just spread out very close to the surface of the soil. And, uh, in, in just a very few years, it's probably just gonna, just gonna fall over, um, because it's not real firmly down into the ground, but I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it another year or two years to have green on it and I'll give it five or six years. But after that, it's going to either fall or be in danger of falling. Well, I was thinking about putting a vine on it, but I believe I'll have it cut down. I think that's probably a good plan. But here's here's what I would do if I were you, Vic, is I would get somebody to cut it maybe eight feet above the ground. That takes off that top of it is what's going to pull it and make it topple over. If you cut it to where it's just a, you know, got some growth maybe eight feet up in the air, it could stand there 15 or 20 years, and then you could put a nice vine growing on it. So 
Uh, I think that it accomplished both purposes. It would give you a nice trellis to grow your vine on, but it'd take the top of that tree off, which is what's going to pull it down. And um, that, if it were mine, that's that's how I would do it. And then I'd plant Queen's Crown or a flowering vine on it like that and make the most of it. Okay. Uh, that answers that question. Then I have uh, another couple. I have another uh, cedar tree that's doing the same, but it's out where the deer can get to it. Mm-hmm. And it's really not in danger, endangering anything. If I put a vine on it, what kind of vine? Is there a vine that the deer would not eat that would grow on a, a situation? This is a smaller tree sure. and has more branches. Um, are you able to water it? Uh, I could water it, yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, the, the vine that the deer are most likely to leave alone is going to be something we call cross vine, C-R-O-S-S. Mature vine, if you cut the vine, there'll be almost a perfect cross in the center of it. It's where the name comes from. We have a native form of cross vine that you will find different places across the hill country. But there is an improved form that has sort of a uh, apricot, uh, orangey colored flower. The variety is called tangerine beauty cross vine. Oh, yeah. I've and, had one of those in yeah. other place. Now, if you're just overrun with deer, they're going to eat anything. But uh, yeah. if you've got... You know, if you've if you've called your deer herd, so to speak, down to a reasonable number, they will definitely leave the cross vine alone. And um, that's a pretty vine. It's very hardy, very drought tolerant, doesn't get any insect problems that I know of. And once you've gotten it established, you're only going to have to water it in the very driest of times. And even then, not that often. Plus, it'll give you lots and lots of beautiful flowers, especially in the spring. Uh huh. And then I have a sm- small arbor with just a gate, kind of for privacy. Uh huh. And I need a vine to grow on that. It doesn't have to just cover the the structure up because you know I built it uh, as architectural. Sure, uh, sure. Back to it. Uh, uh, can uh, the would, uh, Carl honeysuckle? Uh, work on a situation like that it would grow but in all honesty it's not the prettiest vine out there i mean it does have nice flowers but it just it's always got some dead wood in it Uh, can the deer get to this arbor or is this pretty much deer proof there it's it's in a deer proof area and what what area are you in how far north are you i'm uh uh, in Garden Ridge. Okay. I would be looking, um, if you want an evergreen vine, I'd look at uh, star jasmine or confederate jasmine. Uh, beautiful vine, extremely fragrant white flowers. Um, or, again, that tangerine beauty cross vine. Those would be two evergreen vines. Now, if you want the vine that's going to give you the absolute most flowers, uh, look at what they call Queen's Crown, uh, properly called Antigonon, Rosa Montana, lots of different names for it. But uh, there's a pink form and a white form, and that thing will have so many flowers you can barely see the leaves on it. It freezes down to the ground every year, but then it comes back out. Uh, we have some planted. We have two uh, old telephone poles about 15 feet tall that hold up gates, and the that that stuff is already up and beyond the top of the poles and uh, it just i mean it's just is one of the most spectacular bloomers you've ever seen if you want a vine that nobody else will have or very very few people will have there's a vine called rangoon r-a-n-g-o-o-n like used to be burma now thinks it's myanmar or something like that but rangoon creeper 
is a vine that freezes down in the winter. And my, my partner has it up around her place in Bergheim, so I know it would be cold hardy in Garden Ridge. It freezes down, but then it comes back vigorously in the spring, blooms with big clusters of flowers. They sort of go from a maroon color to a pink color, very, very fragrant um her she's got it over a, a gate that goes out of the garden has one planted on either side and i know there are times through the summer and fall months that it has 50 to 75 clusters of flowers which means you know probably a thousand flowers open at a time on it so rangoon creeper would be another pretty vine that you could put on there but it is going to go away in the winter months and this this area gets uh probably five hours to six hours of sun a day that'd be fine uh, for any of these vines all right all right that sounds good i've looked at those several times and i never have bought one well it's just you decide what pleases you because any of them with a little care will do very well for you there i planted uh i planted some uh viburnum yeah quite a few uh and they have them in this area, and the deer don't seem to bother them. That is the most deer-proof shrub I've ever seen. They grow it all over fair oaks and places that are just overrun with deer. Sandanqua viburnum and Mount Laurel are two of the few plants out there that are truly deer-proof. Uh, is the mirror leaf viburnum the same? or the... Uh, It's not as deer-resistant. Proper name on Sandanqua is actually viburnum suspensum. Um, and, uh, yeah, the mirror leaf, uh, those are a different group of viburnums. And unfortunately they're a little more attractive to the deer. Uh, nothing, you know, that old Sandanqua, it has kind of an odd smell to it. Plus it's a really tough leaf. It's got a lot of things going for it that make the deer not like it. But, um, I, your mirror leaf will be deer resistant, but it sure won't be deer proof. Yeah. All righty. Uh, I believe that got all my questions, and I sure do appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. I'll try the Rangoon Creeper. I Alrighty. think you'll enjoy yeah. it. Okay, Vic. Thanks for the call, and we'll do it again. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines, and Art is up next. Good morning, Art. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm great, sir. Good rain overnight, and looks like it's going to clear off and yes. be a nice afternoon. It just doesn't get much better than that. Good. I'm from Garden Ridge as well. Yes, sir. Uh, for that fellow that just talked to you, uh, I had a similar problem with my cedar tree. Uh-huh. Uh, they were dying, and I just poured water to them, and they came back. Oh, that's so, interesting so. to know. Yeah. yeah. Right and, now, they're too wet, but, you know, it just... The problem with cedars is they don't like civilization. They like growing out in the wilds, and when we start, you know, putting in sprinkler systems and putting grass in and taking good care of them, they thank us by sometimes just folding up and dying, but uh, glad yours bounced back. But uh, how can I help you today? Well, I'm from Halota, so I know cedars. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't have a question. I don't have a question, Bob. Uh, I have a, a comment. Uh, okay. I was sitting at a doctor. I was had a doctor appointment. I'm I'm early for the appointment. I still sit there for an hour and fifteen minutes. So I picked up a magazine, and all they had was Good Housekeeping and and the other magazine, which is uh, a <laughs> gentleman only uh, lady forbidden. Yeah, and usually about six months old, but you can still sometimes find something interesting in there. So I picked up one. It was a, a golf magazine, gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. Okay. And, and I don't play golf. I don't play golf, but. But I found an article that said, water that you eat. And I said, okay, I'm interested. So I started reading. Is that the best form of water 
for your body to consume and, and, and use is water that you heat. And the best source is cucumbers. Huh. I said, okay, I'm still, still interested. And said, the next best form of water that you, that you, uh, your body consumes and, and uses is tap water. And, and then the, the next form is bottled water. And the worst form is fresh tap uh, water from a spring. And I, so I said, like, man, that sounds backwards to me. But uh, spring water has feces in it, so that's, that's what they're, they're reason for that one. Well, and, uh, that depends bottle, on where the... Bottle that... water, yeah, bottled water is filtered, so that's a little bit better for you. And then tap water is, is probably better than, than uh, any of the other forms, other than water that you eat. Well, I, you know, I, I would agree with a little bit of that, whether it's cucumbers, whether it's watermelons, uh, you know, you're getting lots of electrolytes along with the moisture, but obviously whoever wrote that article didn't, didn't live in South Texas because a person could not consume enough cucumbers to get the sometimes, you know, two to four quarts of water we need a day, especially if we're working out in the heat. But uh, I will I will grant that it is a good source of water. But, uh, you know, I <laughs> there may be places that your springs are contaminated, but uh, uh, spring water is, um, I, you know, I know a lot of good springs that uh, that are not contaminated by animals presence and quite frankly you can use a backpacking filter which i carry when i'm in the wilderness and you can purify and take out any little impurities that might be in there so um problem with tap water is you can have everything from lead in the pipes to all the chemicals the city puts in it to disinfect it uh bottled water yeah you may be putting it in some kind of plastic bottle that's not real good so uh I'm I'm afraid even if I have to filter it, I'm going to move spring water way up on the list. And uh, I, and while I do love my watermelons, my cucumbers, my squash, those things that have a lot of water in them, um, it's not unusual for me to drink a gallon of water when I'm working out in the heat. And uh, you almost have to do that to stay healthy. So I would say it's an interesting article, but I would say it's uh, probably written for a different part of the country. Well, if I would have been drinking a gallon of water, I would have been sitting in that doctor's office either. Kidney <laughs> uh, stones, uh, chemistry, body chemistry way off, and, and and I needed more water. Yes, sir. Well, Art, I appreciate you sharing with us, and uh, let me keep going here because I got lots of people waiting. Next up is going to be Joe. Good morning, Joe. Let's see. I think I might. Uh, let's do this. So, right there. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Bob. How good. are you? Uh, it's just a beautiful morning out there and uh, good rain. You know, I'm not complaining about anything this morning. God is good. Yes, indeed. I have a question about my pole beans. Okay. They're blooming, uh-huh. but they're not setting. So what do I need to do? We're located near Junction. You know, I'll tell you the truth, Joe. I've almost quit growing pole beans because I've had the same experience and I think it has a lot to do with the heat. I would encourage you to do anything you can to get pollinators in there, do anything you can to increase the number of bees. I would um, probably be spraying with liquid seaweed. That seems to sometimes give the plants some of the micronutrients they need to set beans. But about past three years now because i used to plant pretty much evenly divided bush beans and pole beans 
And just all of a sudden, the pole beans just got to where they were not producing very well at all. And yet I've never ever had a failure with bush beans. So uh, um, I'm going to tell you, trying to increase the pollinators, spraying with liquid seaweed is going to help. But I, I don't know what's gone wrong with our pole beans the past few years, whether it's probably weather-related but uh, you and virtually every other gardener I talk to is having problems with their pole beans. Hmm. I mean, the nice thing about pole beans is you don't have to bend over to pick them, but um, (laughs) (laughs) they're just not very good as a decorative bean. And I've tried the old varieties. I've tried the new varieties and just, I, they just simply do not produce well for me, uh, and this is after years of having, you know, done relatively well with them. I'd try the liquid seaweed. I'd maybe add some green sand or magic sand, see if we can get some more minerals in the soil, but uh, nobody I've talked to has really come up with a reason why the production has gone down so much on them. Okay. Um, the green sand or magic sand, do you just kind of work that in the surface or just I, I just put, put it, it over on, the top? Or? I just put it on top of the ground. And I have to okay. tell you that I've got three fairly big sections where uh, I grow black-eyed peas. And black-eyed peas, I've always had an issue with them getting a little chlorotic. Man, the area, I did uh, two out of the three with the magic sand those plants are twice as big and producing twice the number of peas. So uh, I'm oh. I'm really impressed with it. And uh, like I say, it'd be worth trying on your bush beans uh, to see. Sure. Uh, I'm sorry, on your pole beans to see if it makes a difference. Because my, my black eyes are just starting to produce. So ask me in about three weeks and I'll tell you whether it's really making a difference in production. But right now I've got more blooms and bigger plants than I've ever had on the California black eyes. Sounds good. I'll try it. Thank you. Well, you're sure welcome. And uh, on on bush beans, and it's not too late to plant a couple of rows, try contender, try top crop. Those are two of my favorites for the hot summer weather, and uh, I don't want you to be without good green beans this summer. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Joe. Thank you for the call. Bye. <laughs> All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. All lines are full now, by the way. It's going to be Clint and Roger and Maggie and Charles. Clint's up first. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you today? Oh, pretty good. I got a question about tomatoes and a tip about cut ants. All right, sir. Uh, I planted some celebrity tomatoes ever since we got that first rain. uh, That fungus has been tearing them up. Uh, Uh Uh-huh. Cornmeal on the ground prevent that? It goes a long way toward preventing it. Some varieties of tomatoes seem just to be a little bit more susceptible uh, to the, uh, it's called early blight is what the fungus is. And um, on some of the things like your uh, Roma tomatoes and all, I've not had a lot of luck using it to prevent it. But on my bigger tomatoes and on my cherries, Putting the cornmeal on the ground is uh, virtually 100% prevented it. And I put it out when I really want to put the plants out so you get a real early start with it. Maybe just one big handful. That's probably half a cup around each plant. And uh, that goes a long way toward stopping it from ever getting started. Well, I planted the celebrity tomatoes, and it's just tearing them up. Yeah. My celebrities are totally clean and free of it. Wow. 
Now, that corn water tea, how long does it take for it to knock out the blight and the plant to recover? Uh, what kind of plant are we talking about? The celebrity tomato. Oh, okay. Um, it really depends on uh, how badly infected the plant is. It will generally stop it from spreading almost immediately, but uh, how long it takes the plant to recover? Celebrities, of course, are semi-determinate. So once they get up to a certain size, their growth really slows down. So um, I, it's really hard to say how long it'll take a plant to recover, but it generally stops it. Like two applications will usually completely stop it from spreading. Okay. Now, I was listening to the lady earlier about the cut ants. I was uh, battling them out here, and I found a couple things that helped knock them out. Please share with us. Um. Uh, the first thing is the Amdro pl- uh, product. It has to be the Amdro Ant Block, not the other ones, but Ant Block specifically. And then I discovered uh, those uh, ants love chicken scratch and turkey starter. Right. So what I'll do on the turkey starter uh, or the chicken scratch, I'll get that and I'll mix it up uh, with some wettable sulfur. And on either bait, you sprinkle around by the base of the hole and sprinkle just a little bit in the hole. You now, are we talking? Are we hole. talking leaf cutters? Or are we talking harvester ants? These red ants or black uh, ants? No, leaf cutters. Okay. No, leaf cutter ants. Okay. Uh, you know, and I said they found out uh, they love chicken feed in the turkey starter, so I use that as bait mixed up with uh, uh, wettable sulfur. But I, I leave that dry. Okay. Just coat it real good. Sprinkle it around the entrance of the. Uh, of the ant nest, but you want to get just a few grains down in the hole, but don't overdo it where the the bait plugs up a hole, then they'll ignore it if you block that hole. But if you just a few grains down in there, they tend to go after it pretty well. Now, are the ants you're talking about red ants or are they black ants? Uh, no, they're the, they're, they're, they're the harvester ants. Okay. Well, harvester ants uh, and leaf cutter. The harvester, not, the, no, no, the leaf cutter ants because they're the same ants that were attacking my trees. Okay, but because they don't they don't eat corn or anything like that. They exist strictly on a fungus that grows on the leaves. So I'm I wonder a little bit if we're talking the same kind of ants. But hey, it's certainly worth a try. And uh, sulfur is a great product to use. Now, Amdro is uh, pretty toxic in the environment. I'm never going to recommend Amdro. In fact, I think most of it's off the market now because of the environmental damage it caused. But, uh, you know, some turkey starters, some something like that, uh, corn chops or something like that, man, if it works uh, and, and you use that to get the sulfur down into the colony, that's a great thing because that sulfur then serves as a natural fungicide that kills the ants or kills the fungus that the ants eat for food. So that sounds a great, great thing to try. Now it's not nothing instant or overnight. It takes a while for them to work. Oh, absolutely. Knocked out a huge ant nest uh, that I've been battling and just discovered it because, uh, and I got some young chicks and hit them with a turkey starter and uh-huh. they're making a mess and they left my tree alone. And they started going after the turkey starter and the chicken scratch. <laughs> well, that's, uh, so. uh, that's uh, a good proof is in the pudding, so to speak. So uh, we'll give it a try and see how it works. Glenn, I appreciate you sharing with us. No problem. Have a good one. You do the same, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, Roger's turn next. Good morning, Roger. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, I got a, quick, got a quick question about peaches. I got a 
I got some Florida King peaches, peach trees that have done pretty good for the last five or six years, I guess. And I think last year, you mentioned it once before, I think that the drought might have got a hold of them pretty bad. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm just debating on now whether to cut, literally cut and go and get new new peach trees. And the reason I say that is because uh, about five, four out of five limbs on this one tree are dead, appear to be dead. And then I got some leaves, and I got some little pink flowers on them earlier this year, probably around April. Uh-huh. But it doesn't, I'm just trying to figure out, are those just... You think those are just seedlings or saplings or? Well, if whether they cut the thing down, are they coming out from the base of the tree or are they coming out further up on the tree? Uh, both. Okay, the ones coming out at the base are probably coming off the rootstock of the tree, and those are never going to produce a decent peach for you. Um, if I, I would look at the trees individually. If they're more than 60, 70% dead, I'd pull them out and replace them. Um, if they're, you know, 20 to 40% dead, I'd trim out the dead. I'd trim out any sprouts that come off the rootstock, and I think those trees would be recoverable. But if I've got a, if I've got a peach tree and four out of five limbs of it are gone, um, you could nurse it along, but at the same time you were doing that, you could have a very vigorous new tree giving you a lot more peaches. So I'm just going to kind of judge by how bad a shape those trees are in. And like I say, if they're, if they're more than 60% dead, uh, I'm going to rip them out and plant some new ones. Yeah, that, that, that's the answer I was looking for because to me, they are at least 70%. So I think I'm going to jerk them out. And then uh, uh, Phoenix, Phoenix Nursery, they have peach trees, right? They have the best peach trees in this part of the country, I think. That's what I thought. And Florida King, is that a pretty good... Where where are you located? In Floresville. Yeah, it's a little bit low chilling. I'd probably be looking more at uh, um, La Feliciana or maybe looking at the John Fannix peach or the Sam Houston peach. But if Florida King has produced for you in the past, uh, it's worth you know it's worth trying. But I think you're going to find that a lot of years it blooms a little too early. Uh, I'm going to be looking for about a 500 to 550 hour peach for Floresville, and um, uh, Mark and Mike can sure help you with uh, several different varieties. I think will will perform very well for you. Yeah, I, I think that I think that, well, you're right about the the size and all that stuff. I think and you said the first one was a Feliciano. La Feliciana, L A, separate word F E L I C I A N A. Okay, and then Sam Houston. I've I think I've had a Sam Houston before, and it worked out pretty good. Yeah, too. it's a big peach. It's a juicy peach. It's a little bit susceptible to a couple of uh, uh, bacterial things that may hit the fruit. But if you stay on a good organic problem, that's not going to be a bad thing. Uh, the the peach that uh, the boys named for their dad, the John Fannick peach, uh, is also a peach that is the perfect chilling uh, requirement for down down around where you are, and I'd I'd sure put one or two of those in because um, that's an excellent peach as well. Yeah, I've got I've got sandy loam soil. Yeah, and uh, the other question I had, last question I had for you was, I want to want to replant some pear trees too. Mm-hmm. What would be a good What would be a good soft pear tree? There is no soft pear that does well here. All the soft pears are way too susceptible to bacterial fire blight. 
Um, there's some good pairs, Orient, Kiefer, Lacant, Moonglow, Seckle, uh, but they're all hard pairs. Um, you're going to have to, you're going to have to move to a different part of the country if you want to grow a soft pair. That answered my second question because <laughs> my cattle got in my yard and they broke a, a Bartlett pear tree in half and it, and it looked like it wanted to come back, but I'm no. not going to pull it up. No, they did you a favor. Bartlett is one of the most, uh, fire blight susceptible trees in the world. They grow well for two or three years and then they'll die over the course of, uh, three or four weeks time. So, uh, I sure would be planting a Bartlett, uh, in your area or anywhere in this part of Texas. Yeah. It's it, like I said, it, it, I got, I think we've gotten three, three pairs in the last five years from that plant. So yeah. you're right. The cows yeah. Plant, plant some Orient, plant some kefir, and, uh, they will soften if you pick them and, and, uh, they, they improve in flavor. They're not like a peach that, uh, just gets softer. It doesn't uh, ripen at all. A pear will ripen after you pick it. And, uh, they're, they're a harder peach, but they're a good peach. And my grandfather used to can them all the time. And man, he would, he would put those things up with a little sugar, and he always put a couple of red hot candies in with a jar of pears. And man, you sure did look forward to <laughs> to dinner when he pulled out one of those things to open for uh, you know for fruit for the meal. So yeah, they they may be hard pears, but there are a lot of good things you can do with. Uh, and like I say, there's Orient, there's Kiefer, there's Leconte, there's Moonglow. There are lots of different good peaches out there, and Fanix will sure help you with those as well. And I know once before you told me Bruce Plums work well with what other one because they have to germinate or pollinate right cross pollinate they it works real well with methylene is probably the best companion for a bruce okay all right well i do appreciate it thank you have a good week you do the same roger i appreciate the call all right it's gonna be uh maggie charles and adam good morning maggie well, good morning. I'll tell you, it's nice and cool at my house this morning. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. is for the day before the 1st of July. It's an amazing morning. I'm um, I'm just shaking my head and hoping it lasts. Oh, yeah, exactly. I went back inside and put on my long pants. <laughs> Such a problem to have. That's right. Uh, here's my deal. Uh, a group of us got together on Friday to put together a neighborhood butterfly garden. We Excellent. had uh, some land there that hadn't done anything, hadn't been planted for a couple of years. We thought, well, we know it's not the right time of the year, but we have plants available. So sure. away we went. And uh, it has a, a, a drip irrigation in it, and it had been raining. It had lots of mulch on top of it, but mm-hmm. no plants. So we cleared away the mulch, got our plants out. And got ready to dig, and it was like concrete. Okay. Well, the the fellas came out, and they they fluffed up the soil enough where we could put the plants in. So we put those in, watered them in good. I sprinkled around some growing green because that's what I had at the mm-hmm. time, and we put more mulch back on top. Now, what do we do to keep that uh, area, keep that soil, so, or not keep it, make it soft? Well. <laughs> it, just stay stay organic is the main thing. Um, right. oh, chemical synthetic fertilizers burn the organic material out of the soil, which is what makes your soil get hard. Anything right. and everything you do that builds microbial activity in the soil is going to soften the soil and work to keep it soft. And that would be using things like sprinkle some dry molasses around periodically. A um, little bit of Medina Plus or Medina Soil Activator. Medina Plus is your soil activator with some extra seaweed in it. Those are things that increase microbial activity. 
Um, you want to be a little careful with mulches. A lot of our butterfly attractors are things that really don't want to stay too wet and is as possible to over mulch, especially some of the native plants. So uh, be sure that you're not getting it too thick, especially piled right around the base of the plants but right. anywhere you've got bare ground a layer of compost a layer of living mulch that is going to work to keep the soil softer but uh things are going to start getting better immediately just staying away from the synthetic fertilizers and those things will help but uh like say anything that builds microbial activity like fertilizer like molasses either liquid or dry things like medina plus yeah uh, you're just going to see an improvement uh season after season well, we had bees when we go back to admire it. Here came the bees. So Excellent. Was, uh, well, if they're if you're attracting bees, you're going to attract the butterflies too. All right. Well, let me ask you this now on the drip irrigation. How and it's it's not uh, it's what I call an industrial size, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how should that be run? Right now, it's set for forty minutes uh, three times a week, and I don't. I'm not sure that. Well, I'm not sure what all you have planted in there. I definitely would increase the time to probably an hour and a half or so. But the frequency is going to depend on the kind of plants you've put in there. And a lot of things that are first planted, you're going to have to water daily to get their roots established. But once they're established, watering two, three times a week would be plenty. But uh, I'm definitely going to increase the length of time that it runs. Uh, Good morning, Charles. Hey, Charles. Oh. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Got two questions for you this morning, please. Okay. Number one is, how much molasses do I need to add to a gallon of diesel? I've got some hackberry trees I've cut down, and I want to make sure they don't come back. I use it about 50-50. Remember, the molasses is not making your diesel work better or anything like that. The diesel kills... Uh, the molasses simply cleans up the residue. It encourages the microbes that break down the diesel and basically turn it into fertilizer. So I'm using about equal parts, and you don't necessarily have to mix them together because, you know, they don't mix well. You have to keep agitating, and uh, I think I'm going to pretty much start following the advice I've given to some of the callers. I may just take, you know, one watering can full of diesel, one watering can full of molasses, and just pour the diesel on first and then follow up with the molasses. But the the amount is not critical, but I, I usually figure about 50-50 because that way I figure I'm getting enough molasses down to really create the kind of mal- uh, um, microbial activity that's going to clean up that stuff. Oh, perfect. That's what I was looking for. The second one, second question I got is I want to put down a 12-by-12 12 12 concrete pad. Uh-huh. And I have a heritage oak. It would take two men to reach around it that's growing at a 60-degree angle toward the north. I want to put this pad on the south side of this huge tree, mm-hmm. but I don't want to endanger the root system on it. How close can I get to that tree without hurting it? Oh, are you going to excavate to pour this slab or this pad, or are you basically going to put it on top of the ground? Basically put it on top of the ground. I I would not worry about getting up, oh gosh, within three feet of the tree. I mean, you're going to cover up maximum 5%, probably more like 2% of that tree's root system. So um, 
And are are you going to make this super strong? Are you going to put uh, rebar in it? You're just going to use some concrete wire. What are you going to be using this pad for? I'm going to put rebar in it and put a, a tool or a, a she shed on top of it. Okay. Um, what I don't want you to do is anything that's going to create a lot of uh, soil compaction. Um, you're actually going to buy premixed concrete. You're going to have a concrete truck come in to pour it. What you will want to do is make that truck stay as far away from the tree as possible. You know, they've got extenders they can put on that chute that feeds the concrete. I'm going to I'm gonna make it impossible for that truck to... I, I want to see how long I can make that chute. And uh, uh, you know how hard it is to find anybody that wants to do any work these days. But ideal world would be to make that truck stop 30 feet away and have two guys and two wheelbarrows. Uh, I mean, 12 by 12 is not all that big an area. I'd be wheeling the concrete up, dumping it in while somebody else is puddling it and smoothing it out. Knowing that's not going to happen, I'm just going to use every extender that that truck has on the delivery chute to keep him as far away as possible because compaction over the root zone of that tree is uh, is your biggest enemy there. Well, you've convinced me. I'll have the guys come in and mix it next to the pad then instead of having the truck deliver it. Well, you can have a truck deliver it, but uh, just, you know, get a couple of deep wheelbarrows and just make that truck stop 20 feet away and just, uh, you know, just wheel the concrete over to it. It's a lot easier to let somebody else do the mixing. You can always rent or you may even have access to, you know, one of those little um, hand mixers, but I, I'm going to try to buy premix, but I'm just going to keep that truck as far away as possible from, uh, the pad to be. Well, that's, that's great to know. And I'm, I really appreciate, uh, being able to get that pad that close to the tree. I plan yeah. to stay farther away from it than that. Well, if you told me you were going to cut grade beams, if you told me you were going to excavate to put this pad in, yeah, I would have backed you off a lot further away. Um, if you're going to actually be damaging the roots, the formula is uh, take the diameter to the tree in inches and take half of that, convert it to feet. If that tree's 40 inches in diameter, you'd want to stay 20 feet away from it. But where you're not digging, where you're not cutting roots, no, you can get up a lot closer to that tree and not worry about it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so very much, Bob. Really appreciate that and appreciate your your show. It's wonderful. I appreciate your compliments and uh, good luck on your new project. <laughs> There's nothing. Only problem with building a shed, it's just kind of like building a greenhouse. It's never going to be big enough. So uh, uh, good luck with it. And when you build that second one, give me a call and we'll talk about that as well, Charles. Have a great uh, have a great day. Let me move on to Adam. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, sir. Uh, just, uh, two quick questions. Okay, Adam, hang on just one second. Let me do one thing okay. real quickly here. And, um, okay, now I think we've got that taken care of. Okay, now how can I help you? Yes, I bought two peach trees over at the base at Randolph. I don't remember what they were, but I bought them two years ago, and they got beat up by the that small hailstorm that we had. Yes, sir. But they came back. And uh, this year I got some peaches on both of them, not very many, but a few. Okay. What would be good to feed the, the, the peach trees? I got that and some lemon trees. I would, uh, and, and all of them are planted in the ground. They're, your lemon trees are in the ground, not in pots? 
No, I just put them in the ground two okay. weeks ago. You know, the same thing that you would put on your grass, one of the good organic fertilizers, Medina's Growing Green would be very good. Nature's Creations uh, Premium Lawn Food would be very good. Maestro Grows product they call Texas Tea. Uh, just be sure it's organic, but it doesn't have to be a special food for any of those trees. Just uh, a good basic organic fertilizer about four times a year is going to get them off to a really good start. Times okay. They, that that I'm gonna try that Texas tree. Uh, y'all carry that? We carry the Medina products. Uh, Maestro okay. Grow. Maestro Grow makes some different fertilizers for us, but quite frankly, um, the uh, the uh, Texas tea is a little more expensive, and I don't think it's any mm-hmm. better uh, than the Medina products. So uh, we don't. But if you if you like to use the Maestro Grow stuff, I'm sure there's somebody in town's got it in stock. It's good fertilizer. Okay, then I'll just go by and see what you can what you can get for me there. Okay, well, and we'll look second, forward to helping you. Okay, my second question: Y'all just advertised about a buyer's track feed. Viatrack fertilizer is a yeah, bulk is a bulk poultry litter fertilizer, um, and they may be putting it in bags now. Um, it it to me it is a great product for somebody that's fertilizing a big area, fertilizing a hay field, fertilizing mm-hmm. you know things in bulk. It doesn't have all the micronutrients and things like that that Medina puts into their fertilizers. But for the guy that's you know got twenty acres of coastal, Viatrek uh, is a is a wonderful fertilizer. It like I say, it's not fortified with all the different things. But uh, I've talked to two or three. Um, people who've used it on acreage who've been super pleased with the results. Uh, I, it's going to be available mainly at your feed stores. Um, oh gosh, places uh, uh, you know that you're going to find uh, down south. Uh, uh, you know, and and they always talk about one or two of the feed stores that carries uh, carry it. I know Morales Feed is somebody that I like very much, and uh, I believe they have it available for you. But uh, it's it's a it's a really good basic fertilizer for the home gardener. I tend to go with something that's got a little bit more uh, fortification to it. What do you recommend for the for the yard? Because I just put some lawn dressing and it was all right, but it's not exactly working out the way. You know, for a fertilizer that you can find almost anywhere, Medina's Growing Green is the top of my list. Growing Green. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right, sir. Appreciate your help. Well, good luck with your new peach orchard, Adam. Even if it's only a couple of trees, and uh, you have a great Fourth uh, of July, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, next up is going to be ET. Good morning, ET. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. How are you today? I uh, just give me a good rain overnight and a nice day afterwards. I'm going to be sweating this afternoon, but uh, uh, just getting over an inch of rain is always a blessing when you live in the hill country. Uh, my days this morning only read a quarter of an inch. Okay, I got a problem. I called you last week about beneficial nematodes. Yes, sir. And in New Brownsville, nobody has them on the blue sponge. Okay. The plant house, all they have is a powder form, and the feed store on the loop, I talked to them. They said they didn't have none, and I don't think they carry them on the blue sponge. Do you or any of your listeners know where I can find them without having to travel 30 miles to San Antonio? I would probably go with the dry ones that the plant house has. Um, 
I, you know, I, I, I wish they would see the problem. The ones on the blue sponge in my book are very definitely the best, but they only have about a two week shelf life in the refrigerator. And quite frankly, a lot of nurseries, um, they're concerned, you know, we're going to be able to sell it all. That dry product has a much longer shelf life. I don't think it is as good as the blue sponge, but it still takes care of a lot of problems. So um, when you're in San Antonio, uh, make it a point to get by and get some of the ones on the blue sponge. But in the meantime, um, Plant House, their their dry product is probably the ones from Nature's Creation and uh it's kind of like the difference in the hamburger and the T-bone or the prime rib. I'm going to go with the prime rib when it's available, but I'm not going to drive 100 miles to get it if I can get a good hamburger somewhere closer by. And that's what you're sort of doing. If it's a nature's creation, dry beneficial nematodes, they're going to do a lot of good for you. I just don't think they're the very best one out there. But apparently they're concerned about being able to sell enough of them to really keep them in stock. Okay. Um, we, we get like two shipments a week, so we don't have any problem always having fresh ones, but, uh, not everybody does as much business as we do, I guess is the best way to put it. And uh, that dry form, do I still have to mix it up in a bucket of water? Just, or I just follow the directions. Up? I think you can just put it out dry, but uh, I've not used it myself. I, I know of it, and I know Nature's Creation is a good company, but um, I, I can't – I've not done the application, so I'm not going to mislead you. I'm just going to tell you, read the directions and do what they say. Okay, with all this wet weather, so it'll be a great time to put it, it out. It is okay, the perfect, Thank you very much. perfect time to put them out with all the wet weather. And I appreciate right, the call, have, D.T. Thank you, Bob. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, back to gardening. Uh, let's see here. Richard, Bill, Bud, and Paul in that order. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, I was watching a show on TV and that had um, burled, putting burled walnut on the dash of an expensive car. Okay. And the question came up, what causes burls to form on trees? It is, it is sort of like a canker on a tree, and it can be caused by insects. It can be caused by bacteria. Okay. So it's not just a, a single thing. It can be a variety of things. That it can be a variety of things. It can be a variety of trees. You'll sometimes find burls uh, on even on mesquite trees, which are just absolutely beautiful. It, uh, I, I'm not an old car guy, and I wouldn't know anything about using it that way. But, man, they make some beautiful flooring and other things. But it's uh, uh, in some trees, it can actually be caused by mistletoe. But I think in your walnut, it's uh, usually either bacterial or insect in, in origin. Okay, that would explain why, you, instead of just a single burl, I saw a picture with burls the full length of a mature oak tree. Right. And so it's it's basically something that affects the the uh, the mare stems. Of the, yeah, it's it's an abnormal growth, uh, primarily in the xylem tissue, the woody tissue. Now, yeah. um, as you well know, if you're a woodworker, and it sounds like you know wood. Uh, there are many different forms of walnut, just as there are many different forms of oak, some of which make a good wood to work, some of which make a very soft wood that uh, may be easy to work but doesn't have any lasting quality. So uh, yeah. choose your wood carefully. But, yeah, it's a great question, interesting question. 
All right, thank you. I just I just couldn't find anything on the internet about causes. So well, you uh, um, it it's basically it's almost like a form of a gall. So uh, um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a great question, Richard, and I I certainly do appreciate the call. Uh, let's see here. Bill is up next, and uh, push that button. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Morning, sir. Listener, first time caller. Well, thank you for calling. Yeah, hey, I got a question about some buffalo grass that yes, I sir. put in the front yard. Okay. It it is it looks good. We put it in last year. I prepped the yard correctly, and I was wondering one section of it has what it looks like a witch's broom. Okay. Do you know what I'm talking about, or? I I know what witch's broom is. Now this is this is in effect just a weedy growth within that that one section of a buffalo grass. Well, actually, I I believe the it's it's off the buffalo grass, and it comes up to a, the end of the growth of the grass itself, but it kind of bundles up. Okay. There's a there's a parasitic plant called daughter, but I've never seen it on buffalo grass. Um, okay. I in if it is uh, gosh, if it's some sort of fungal growth, um, you would do it want to do it on a rainy day like this. But dusting a little sulfur around would probably take care of it completely. Don't do it on a hot afternoon because sulfur right. will form sulfur right. dioxide and could burn. But a cool rainy day, I I dust a little sulfur around, and I think that'll knock it out completely. All I can really think of that it would be, since daughter doesn't grow on grass, is probably some sort of uh, oddball fungus. It's probably not. It's probably largely a result of all the wet weather we've had, and it's probably not all that harmful. But I think sulfur would probably okay. be your best way to get rid of it. All right, I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Right. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay, well, moving right along here, next up is Bud. Good morning, Bud. Bob, I need a fertilizer recommendation. What are we feeding? A live oak and a holly. Okay. And crepe myrtle. Okay. That's it. Well, you know, just any good basic organic fertilizer is going to do. I talk about Medina's growing green all the time because you can find it almost anywhere. Um, Nature's Creation makes an excellent product that is actually alfalfa base, which makes it smell better. They simply call that one premium lawn food. Um, Espoma makes a couple of very good fertilizers. They're going to be a little bit more expensive because they're shipped in from a long way away. Um, uh, Maestro Grow is another very good company. They make a good fertilizer called Texas Tea. So I'm good with all of those, but the top two that you're going to find easiest to locate are probably going to be uh, Medina and Nature's Creation. Okay, and I can use uh, a particular fertilizer on all three of those. You can use the same one on all three of those. You can use it on your grass. You can use it in your vegetable garden. Anywhere. Yes, sir. I, I wouldn't really recommend it for house plants. Uh, well, I wouldn't really recommend it for uh, plants growing in pots. There's nothing wrong with it, but I just think in pots. I like to use a liquid fertilizer. But stuff that's in the ground, no, I can't think of a plant that it would be bad for. 
Okay, well, I thank you very much. Just remember, it doesn't work in the bag. And the other nice thing about uh, organic fertilizers is they do not have to be watered in. They don't really go to work until they get some water. But this is a perfect day to fertilize. Uh, You know, again, chemical fertilizers, you can't put them on wet grass because they will burn. But organic fertilizers, I can't think of a better day to get out. And most people, it's been three or four months since they fertilized. So uh, be a real good afternoon activity and that way uh the spouse doesn't try to get you to do it on the fourth of july when you have other things you'd rather do okay and i'll take it out of the bag <laughs> that's a good thing bud i'd say that jokingly but it, you just wouldn't believe how many people that came in and say hey i bought some of that fertilizer but it's still sitting in the garage six months later is it still good yeah it keeps yeah. but it doesn't do any good till it gets out there on the ground so uh you get out and have a good afternoon i sure appreciate the call this morning Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank Bye. you. Bye. All right. Paul is up next. Good morning, Paul. Uh, hi, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Bob, uh, question on uh, sago palms. Um, I know that you're not supposed to transplant them until uh, like August, you know, in the heat of summer. Oh, we're we're in the heat of summer. We're in the heat of summer. You can transplant your sago anytime now. Oh, okay, good. So now a question on two that I have in large um containers uh-huh. uh, one of them had new growth uh, very nice new growth the other one had none now okay. the one that had new growth was getting more direct sun than the one that did not have any new growth um, is that do you think that's the reason why the other one did not have any growth at all I, I would feed them uh, you know fertilize them about the same water them about the same as well Well, I'm going to tell you there are two things about new growth on sagos. Number one, some sagos have not put on their year's growth yet. Some of them are still sitting there waiting. So I'm not going to rule out the possibility that that it may still go ahead and put on its new growth. The other thing that happens is sagos, the sexes are separate. They're what we call dioecious plants. Uh, there's a male plant and a female plant. And when they decide to go into a reproductive state, um, they stop growing for a year. They, they put on, in the case of the females, they put on this uh, kind of gnarly-looking growth right down in the center of the fronds, and they don't make any new growth for about another year. The male plant puts on a cone, an extended cone, grows up out of the top, and they will not put on any growth for a year. So um, either your plant has decided that this is a year for reproduction, or your plant's just simply a little bit slower than the other plant. And I've seen sagos put on their year's growth as early as March. I've seen them put it on as late as August. But it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your plant. And now, one other thing. Are these the plants that you're thinking about planting? Uh, well, what I was thinking about these is uh, removing the old fronds. Is that something that I need to do or should do before I put them in the ground? That's just cosmetic. It doesn't matter one bit. And when you're when you're taking a plant out of a pot and putting it in the ground, sago or anything else, you can do that 365 days a year. The prohibition about doing things in the heat is when you're going to dig a, a sago up and move it from one place to another. When you're going to do damage.
damage to the root system, it has to be done in the hot weather. But if these two guys in pots are the ones that you're talking about planting, you do that when it's convenient to you. You're not going to disturb the roots. So uh, you can do that any time that you like. It doesn't matter whether it's hot or cool. I wouldn't do it in the middle of a really cold winter, but um, that's what I call planting, not transplanting. And so you can do that anytime. Right. Now, um, the... um the fact that they're in the sun or the shade, does it matter in terms of their growth and, and uh, you know, uh, the actual location where they should be or not? Or is that really important at all? If they're growing in the shade, they will be a darker green color. They'll be probably a little more spread out. They won't be quite as compact. And sagos will do just fine whether they are in full sun or whether they are in full shade. But the one thing you have to watch is that a plant is kind of like you and me in that if it has moved very suddenly from a lot of shade to a lot of sun, it will sunburn. It will sunburn badly. And so if these plants have been growing in a shady area and you want to move them into the sun, you're going to need to do it gradually. You're going to need to move them out where they get morning sun, leave them there for two or three weeks. You're going to move, need to move them out where they get midday sun, let them stay there for a little while. You're going to need to then move them out to where they get the full sun. But uh, to go from a plant that's been growing in the shade to putting it out in full sun that's like us going out lying on the beach the first day of spring without having gotten any tan at all we're going to roast and uh, your sago will do the same thing so if it's been in the shade you want to plant in the shade do it this afternoon if it's been in the shade in the sun and you want to plant it in the sun do it this afternoon but if it's been staying in a shady area and now you want to move it out to a sunny area we're going to have to do a little acclimation before we stick it out there in full sun in the ground does that make sense Got it, got it. Last question. The big boy, Larry Opie, uh, I have not had recent success with uh, any flowering on it. And I, I fertilize well. Uh, you know, there's summer in the shade, summer in the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, what would what would cause that? Well, number one, be patient with it. But the big, uh, uh, my grandfather said Liriope. I know Larry Opie is proper, but... Uh, Anyway, the giant form of it, you hardly notice the flowers because they stay down in the leaves. Now, the smaller forms, there's one called Big Blue. There there's several different varieties. The shorter forms, those are the ones that put up the nice tall flower spikes. It's a little early, but uh, normally they're going to be blooming July, August. But if you've got the really big form of Liriope, um, it may bloom and you don't even notice it because those bloom spikes don't come up tall. They stay kind of buried down in the foliage. And unless you're down there picking through the, through the blades of growth, you're not likely to see the flowers. A big form of it is, is not grown for its flowers. It's slimply grown for its leaves. The shorter forms, um, yeah, they need a, they need fairly bright light. They need some fertilizer, but they will normally bloom on their own. But if you've got the great big one, um, it's not really, don't expect a whole lot from it when it comes to flowering. Hmm. Okay. Bob, thank you very much. Appreciate you very much. Always a pleasure, Paul. Great questions you ask, so call any time. All right, enough George Got Time music. Let's get back to gardening. Don, Leo, Mike, and Reese will be my next callers. Good morning, Don. 
Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm today? good, sir. How are things in Divine this morning? Oh, uh, we got probably about a three quarter. It depends on where you're at, where it rains out here. Yeah, it's always welcome. My question for today is: is uh, I'm starting to get a couple of fleas inside the house, and I'm all hardwood floors, no carpeting or anything. Right. And I've been treating the floor. I've been mopping the floors with the orange oil to eliminate all the fleas. Right. On the floor. My question is: I have a dog that she has her own chair. <laughs> yep. And my my question is: is can I? Spray the chair with the orange oil water mixture? I would not. I think you might find that it would bleach the fabric a little bit. I would vacuum that chair. I would get in there with that little nozzle-type thing on the end, vacuum, 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 do that two or three days in a row. Uh, It's actually probably as important to vacuum your upholstered furniture as it is to do the floor. And don't just stop with her chair do your couch, do all those other things, because that's where your flea larvae are most likely to be. But uh, mop the floor with orange oil, vacuum the upholstery, and uh, give your dog the appropriate thing from your veterinarian, and you will get rid of the fleas. And, of course, beneficial nematodes out in the yard. But but inside, I, I use orange oil on the floor, vacuum cleaner on the upholstery. Okay, another stupid question. No such. If I water down the orange oil and put it in spray your phone's fading out. If you dilute down the orange oil and do what now, Don? I'm afraid your phone has just totally gone away for whatever reason. Uh, okay, I hear you now. I hear you now. Okay. Uh, okay, you dilute down the orange oil and what? And put it in a spray bottle. Could I spray the animal no. once a week? No, no. It, it's way too desiccating, too drying on the skin. If you want to put something on the animals, just get some diatomaceous earth, uh, any form of good, not the not the swimming pool, but any of your uh, horticultural diatomaceous earth. Rub that into their fur. It'll be harmless to them and very bad for the fleas. Yeah, I'm trying to get a head start. The fleas aren't bad yet. But... Well, they're going to be, but no, no orange oil on the animals because it's very drying. Okay, and it's all friendly for kids and pets. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, I just want to make sure I'm trying to get the house ready for kids. Oh, sure, sure. You know, nobody wants to drink it, and like I say, if you if and and I wash with it and things like that occasionally, and it really does dry your skin out, but it doesn't nothing dangerous, no no long term harm caused by it. All righty. Yeah, I was just wondering because I I've noticed they're good for naps too if you put it in a spray bottle. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's the reason why I have four bottles in the house. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, enjoy enjoy those kids. Uh, take care of the pets and kill the fleas. And I know we'll talk again. Let's get Leo on. Good morning, Leo. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. So uh, about a year and a half ago, I uh, planted a rose garden in front of my mom's house in Trenton. And I went and bought the expensive english roses about 18 of them okay and they've been growing really good but uh, i've come to find out that it's in a bad location as far as full sun uh-huh they don't get enough sunlight because they grow a lot and i prune a lot but they hardly have any flowers well part but of that is just being them. english roses english roses are not necessarily the best choice for this area but all roses oh, do <laughs> do like more sun but you, you may part of your problem may be the varieties you chose 
Uh, well, I'm thinking of moving them uh, sometime into a full sun garden. But my question was, when type what type what when should I do it, and how should I do it? Well, when the weather cools off, and your guess is as good as mine as to when that's going to happen, the most important thing in transplanting roses is do not ever let the root system dry out. Root system dries out, the plant's probably not going to make it. So I always dig the new hole first, then I'll go back and dig the rose, replant it immediately, and water it in at once, and... I have transplanted a lot of roses, and I don't lose one out of a thousand when I do it that way. But we're probably going to not do that until October, November, because middle of the summer is really hard. But just just do it one at a time. Don't dig them all up and then go replant them all. Just one rose comes up, gets replanted. The next one comes up, gets replanted. You just simply cannot allow that root system to dry. Other than that, you're going to be very successful. And then do you trim them down? Because they're about four and a half feet tall right now, or four feet tall. That's up to you whether you trim them down or not. That's just cosmetic. If it were me, I'd probably trim them a little bit before I started digging just because I'm going to get less scratched up that way, and it's going to make me easier to handle. But the plants don't really care. All right, I appreciate the information. Well, good luck on the project, and when it comes time to do it, call me back if you have more questions. I look forward to helping you. All right, thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. All right, back to gardening, and uh, we will talk to Mike and then probably finish up today with Reese. Uh, Good morning, Mike. Good rainy morning to you, Bob. Yes, it is. Wow, I really thought I got something with one and nine-tenths inch. (laughs) I would say you did very well with one and nine-tenths of an inch. That's great. Yes, sir, and the man from Bergheim, they got seven inches of rain? No, no, that wasn't. That was this month it had seven inches, not all in one rain. Oh, I said, golly. I don't, I don't think Bergheim's gotten a lot of rain looking from the, looking at the radar this morning. Uh, but it's, uh, I, it's, it's kind of a wet morning out there, but it's, it's a most unusual June. I will put it that way. We'll see what July brings tomorrow. Yes, sir. I believe it was yesterday, uh, a lady had called in and, uh, asked about getting rid of grasshoppers. Okay. And I, I think you said something like Milo or. It is Nolo, N-O-L-O. Uh, is that, that is a liquid or? No, it's, it's uh, like a meal. It's a granule, but it's a very lightweight meal. Uh, it is treated with a bacteria, um, and the, the, botan- or the scientific name of the bacteria is Nosema locustri, and that's why they call it Nolo. What Nolo. it does, it, it sickens the grasshoppers. It's most effective if you put it out. When uh, the grasshoppers are young, they don't just die right away, but uh, grasshoppers are highly cannibalistic. The bigger grasshoppers start eating the sicker, younger grasshoppers. They get the bacteria. They get sick. Somebody eats them and gets the bacteria and gets sick. And uh, that way, and of course, while they're sick, they stop eating completely. So it is by far, I think, the most effective way to control your grasshoppers. You just need to do it while they're still little, because once they get big, um, it, it's not nearly as effective. Okay. Well, the deer have gone through my canola lease and decided they don't like them. But now the grasshoppers, katydids, uh, cicadas, whatever, are just chewing them to pieces. Yeah, I would... 
you know, if you don't need very much, see if you've got a neighbor or somebody you can share it with. It comes in about a one-pound container, and that's enough to do almost an acre. So it's probably, they don't, you know, we're lucky to get it at all. They don't put it up in a smaller container. But, hey, you might find a friend and say, hey, want to go have these on a, on a pound of NOLO, and uh, you'll both benefit from it, and, and you'll save half the cost. It's not super. It's in the neighborhood of $20 for a pound of it, but uh, it's totally safe for people and pets and total death to grasshoppers. Do you carry it over at Shades of Green? We do. Call before you make a trip um, because uh, we buy it in limited quantities to keep it as fresh as possible, but... Uh, uh, I know yesterday we had some, unless some people have cleaned us out this morning. We normally keep it in stock this time of year, but uh, just as soon as I say that, you know, somebody will drive a long way, and we just sold the last pound of it. But uh, call them, tell them, put your name on it, and we'll have it for you when you can make it in to pick it up. Okay, well, how about this colon you had told me about, colon, clay? Kaolin, K-A-O-L-I-N. It's K-E? K-A. Oh, K-A. O. L-I-N. Okay. Um, what that is, is a totally different product. Kaolin clay is like a gritty material. You mix it with water, you spray it on the foliage, and the grasshopper starts to chew on that, and it's you know kind of like trying to chew on sand. Uh, it's not a very pleasant experience, so they find something else to chew on, but it is not uh, it's not harmful to the grasshopper, but it just makes the grasshopper not that want to eat what you've sprayed it on. Now, of course, it does leave a whitish residue on the plants you spray it on, so um, it, it, that's, that's the one drawback to it. But it's a totally different uh, mode of operation, so to speak. It just it makes it unpalatable to them, whereas the NOLO actually kills grasshopper. Okay, how about will it also work on katydids? Uh, the best of my knowledge, it will. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it will. Okay, God killed a uh, katydid in the house the other day, but it did not have the sword on the back of his tail. Yeah. Is that the difference in a male and female? or it Probably so, but it all depends on the species of katydid. And remember, too, the NOLO is not as effective on the adults, so you want to get it out as quickly as possible. Okay, well, I thank you very much, and uh, have a good rest of the day. You do the same, Mike, and a happy 4th of July as well. I appreciate the call. All right, let's finish the day up with our friend Reese. Good morning, Reese. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for taking the call. Mm. I have a few questions for you, Bob. The first thing is I noticed so many snails in my uh, patio, you know, this oh, year. Yeah, because because of all the water. Of the rain we've had, right? Yes, exactly. This snails are aquatic creatures, and uh, ah. they their eggs have to be laid in a moist situation. So, yeah, this is perfect snail weather. I see. And also, you know, the other day I noticed two cockroaches in my garage. Mm-hmm. Before I call this pest control, is there anything I can do? control them diatomaceous diatomaceous earth is pretty effective if you have a place you can dust it around Uh the other thing that you can do you can make your own cockroach bait by going to the grocery store or the pharmacy and getting some boric acid and mix your boric acid with sugar about half and half and kind of make a little bait station and put it out Uh, the boric acid is highly abrasive 
Uh, the cockroaches eat it along with the sugar, and it kills them very, very effectively. Wow. Wonderful to know that, Bob. Before, I wanted to call the pest control, you know. And it is- yeah, that $150 could probably be I best know. spent somewhere else. Now, inside your home, yeah, occasionally they get so bad you do need an exterminator. And, yeah. of course, always look for one that does things organically. But yeah. I find that boric acid sugar mix uh, normally takes care of all of my cockroach problems. Now, don't put it on your plants. Don't put it around your plants because boric acid is harmful to plants. But uh, otherwise, it's very safe. And uh, what I do is like put it behind the refrigerator in your garage. Just put it out of sight somewhere. The roaches will find it. They will eat it and they will die. Yeah, I don't have it inside the house, but yeah. I put it in the grass, so no. I want to control it. You know, uh, diatomaceous earth plus uh, a few bait yes. traps of uh, boric oh, acid yeah. and sugar. No more roaches. Okay, and also about the chiggers, you know, you said to use witch hazel cream. Uh, that is, if you've gotten into the chiggers, that will take yeah. the itch yeah. out of the bite. Um, If you're trying to prevent them in your yard, you want to get a cedar oil spray like uh, Cedar Repel or just any liquid cedar oil will work fine for you. Yeah. You know, I had a bite yesterday. I just took some hydrogen peroxide and a cotton ball. I Mm -hmm. dabbed it with the hydrogen peroxide and the itching was gone. Excellent. Rub it over the bite. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of hydrogen peroxide So for all sorts of uses. So... Uh, you've just given me one more. <laughs> I appreciate it, Reese. Yes, thank you so much, Bob, for oh. all that information. You have a wonderful 4th of July. You do the same. Celebrate thank properly and uh, yes. be thankful for all our freedoms. It's, uh, golly, we, we do have so much to be thankful for.